Thank you, Bill. It is, uh, I, I too want to mention I'm grateful that we take time uh, in our country to celebrate Memorial Day where we remember those who have uh, so bravely fought for our freedoms, um, by which we are able to assemble here uh, in freedom uh, at this point and to proclaim God's word um, uh, to you, and that is a, that is a freedom that, that uh, we don't want to take lightly. We also want to say, however, that even if we did not have this freedom granted to us by our government, we would still meet and proclaim God's word. Uh, we don't serve, we don't, we don't ultimately serve the government, we ultimately serve the Lord, but we want to be thankful for the gifts that he's given us and, and remember that. And so this being Memorial Day weekend, um, I thought the preaching of the word should be the center of this weekend. And so we are going to look at verses 22 through 33. Uh, so I figure you have nothing else to do. We will be here for a couple of hours and uh, have all this figured out. Uh, the, the men are at the back so that you can't leave. You just think they're there for our safety, but they're there so you can't leave. Uh, just joking, of course. We are going to cover all of those verses. I'm not joking about that. Um, and so this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you'll open up to Romans chapter 9 with me. And, and I want to do something maybe a little odd this morning and, and start in the middle of this passage. I, I want to start in the middle of this passage um, in, in verse 23 and, and then move forward and then come back uh, to uh, verses 20 through... Uh, well, actually, I'm going to come back to verses 20 through 23. But I want to start with verse 23 because we get the main point... And I want you to get some things down in your head uh, before we go back and look at verses 20 through 23. So let's look at verse starting with verse 23. And he did so. So whatever he did, whatever we're going to talk about in a moment, whatever he did, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And so the question that we should ask, what we see is that whatever he did, he did so to declare, to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. And so what the question I want you to ask, and what I think we need to get down into our bones and into our, the fiber of who we are, is who are these vessels of mercy? In Paul, as he's describing these vessels of mercy, he sees two groups. And in many ways, this summarizes, uh, this summarizes uh, chapter 9 and this lays out a foundation for chapters 9, 10, and 11. We, we always have to have these two groups in mind of whom Paul is uh, talking about. And so the first group that we see in verses 24 through 26, notice we see that Paul is talking about Gentiles. And let's, let's read these verses together. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, Notice this description of the Gentiles. I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not my beloved, not part of that covenant community, I will call her beloved as one of mine, as one of my community. And it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they, the Gentiles, and this is huge, this is so controversial in Paul's day, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. 
Paul here, as he is talking about the Gentiles coming into the church, coming into the community of faith, he's quoting the Old Testament to tell his readers that this has always been God's intention. This has always been God's plan. This is a part of when it was said to Abraham that I will make of you the father of all nations. And we having the New Testament, what we see is the Gentiles coming to faith. We see that what is one of the ultimate, the ultimate purpose in that is that when we get to the book of Revelation, that our God, our God will be praised not from one ethnicity, not from the the tribe of, of Israel, but our God will be praised from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this is what God is doing in history. And so the first thing that we see is that we see the first group he's talking about here, the vessels of mercy, are the Gentiles. And if you were in this day and age, and, and you were sitting, and you were a Gentile, and, and you were sitting by your uh, Jewish friend who was worshiping with you, both of your minds should be blown by what Paul is telling you. That God, in His divine mercy, in His divine mercy, has gone and He has brought in Gentiles into the fold, into the church. And it should just blow your minds that we are here today, we are here today because of God's mercy and His love towards us, that He brought us into a relationship with Him. But notice, that's not the only group that Paul is pointing to in this text as vessels of mercy. Notice what we see in verses 27 through 29. Verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So here Paul is talking about not only are there Gentiles, but there are Jews. But notice what he says about the Jews. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of hosts, as it was read earlier, had left us us a a seed or a remnant. This word actually here uh, in in the NASB, which is translated posterity, goes back to seed, which we weeks ago we talked about this word here. But unless... He had left a remnant. We, Israel, Paul is a Jew, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Let me read where this quote comes from in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, in the first chapter, I'm going to read verses 2 through 9. The quote comes from verse 9. Listen to Isaiah the prophet. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will, you, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. 
and the whole heart is faint. From the sole to, of the foot to even the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would be like Gomorrah. Notice, unless the Lord had left a remnant in Israel, then they would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah. And what Paul is not necessarily saying here, I think in our modern minds, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, of homosexuality. And that's not necessarily what Paul is saying here. The point that Paul is bringing out here, remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis We had Abraham. God says he's going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember what Abraham says? He says, will you wipe out the righteous with the wicked? And do you remember what happened next between Abraham and God? They began to bargain back and forth, right? And and Abraham says, okay, well, if there's this many in the city, will you spare the city? And does anybody remember the number they got down to? Ten. And it's interesting what happened. It's interesting what happened, right? God does not spare the city. What we have is that Lot and his daughters leave. And and after Lot and his daughters leave, that the city is destroyed. And what God is saying is that unless that he would have saved a remnant out of Israel, then Israel would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, meaning that Israel would have been wiped off the face of the earth. That's what is being said in this text. And it is extremely important we understand this because when you look at both of these two groups, the only word that can come to mind in our brains is mercy. Mercy. Now, I'm getting ahead of my hit self. But notice how this happened, how the Gentiles are rushing in and notice how the, that God saves a remnant out of Israel. And we see that in verses 30 through 33. It's, Paul writes, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. In contrast, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over a stumbling blocks. And so Paul, just again, what he's saying is, he's saying that here you have these Gentiles who didn't have the law, didn't have a way to pursue righteousness uh, as, as, as the Jews were trying and attempting to do by works. Here you have these dirty Gentiles who are outside of the camp that God brought in based upon one thing, and that was faith. And then here we have in Israel... Here we have in Israel these people that are trying to work their way towards God and they are being rejected. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. They didn't pursue it by trust. And the whole matter centers around one thing that we see in verses 32 and 33, and that's this. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, 
but as, it, as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes, notice, stone, stone, and then we have, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And so this whole issue of the Gentiles coming in and the remnant that is being saved and, 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 and sparing the, the tribe of Israel, it all comes down to one thing, and that is what is done with Jesus Christ. That they accepted Jesus by faith and they were brought into a relationship with the God of the universe. And brother and sister, just a side note, so it is with us. Nothing has changed. There is a stumbling stone. And we will either find that this stumbling stone, Jesus Christ, means everything to us and provides everything to us, or it is the rock of offense. If we reject Jesus and His offer of salvation, this will be what puts us, whether Jew or Gentile, outside of the camp. So, this is the reason that Paul is writing chapter 9 through 11 is that the Gentiles are coming in and there's only a remnant that's being saved out of Israel and that Israel by and large is rejecting the Messiah. And I want you to notice something else at the end here, uh, the, the middle to end of this chapter, that Paul is holding in tension these two things that we continually talk about. Notice in verse uh, 23, first of all. 23, notice, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Notice, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Notice in verse 24, even us whom he also called. Notice verse 29, it tells us that unless the Lord had left to us a remnant, had left to us a seed, we would have, they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. But then notice in verse 32, verse 32 we have why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. We have this tension that Paul gives us here of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's all over this text. And so as we jump in, in, in a moment, we've got to hold that this is the tension that, that Paul is holding, that he is very comfortable with holding, that we get worked up about. right? So before we go there, I want us to remember and keep in front of us the reason that Paul is writing chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans or this section in his letter. And, and there's three reasons that we need to constantly have in, in front of us. The first one you've heard me say over and over. The other two I've only said once. The first one which you've heard over and over me say is that Paul is writing this because Paul wants us to know that God's word has not failed. Right? We over and over again, we've, we, we've said this. The trustworthiness of God is at stake. And so Paul is saying here, the, the fact that Israel is rejecting her Messiah, it's the, not as though the word of God has failed. God's word does not fail. He is true and he is sure in his promises. The second thing is that there were and there is a potential for divisions in the church at Rome. You have Jewish believers, you have Gentile believers, and, and notice what's happening. One group is outweighing the other, there's, there's a potential for division. And so I think one of the reasons Paul hits that, this issue head on is that he's wanting there not to be divisions within the church. The third reason, the third reason is this. Paul, in writing the book of Romans, is writing to the church at Rome as a support letter for his mission endeavor. 
And think about this for a moment. Think about if you were sitting on our missions council and one of the things that you hear about is that, oh, the, the word of the Lord is, is going out and many, many Gentiles are coming in and the Jewish people are rejecting their Messiah. What would, who would you be tempted to support? Probably the person going to the Jews, right? Paul is writing here to keep in front of them, yes, this is a very important issue, and, and we see all throughout his letter, specifically in chapter 15, he talks about the, the work that is going on in Jerusalem and that they should support that work in Jerusalem. But Paul is emphasizing here that in, in chapters 9 through 11, and we'll see this in the months ahead, that what God is doing among the Gentiles is very, very, very important. And Paul, as a missionary to the Gentiles, is pushing on and taking this gospel further, that this is part of God's plan. This is why Paul was writing this and wrote this section, is because he wants us to know that. So, having all of this in the forefront of our minds, let's go back to verse 19 uh, where we were last week, and then work our way back forward. And, and remember the question in verse 19 that we addressed part last week. I said there were two responses. That The question is this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And, and we said that what Paul is addressing here is, is God's sovereignty in verse 18. And he shows mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And so Paul is asking the natural question, so why will he find fault? And we get two answers. And uh, last week we saw um, or two responses. The first response we got is what our attitude should be when we come to God and when we ask questions. And this week, this week, we're going to stare and notice the words I use here to describe this. When we look at verses 22 through 24, we're going to stare dimly with our feeble and fallen and finite minds into the purposes of God. And we're going to see something that's tough, that's really tough, and creates more questions, but I hope that you'll also find it very sweet. And, and, and one of the things that we've got to know, and what we will see, and what we will come out of this knowing, is that God's purpose in the world is not to make much of Lewis, God's purpose in the world is to make much of Himself and His name. And we get this all throughout the Bible, and we get this especially in this text. And so I, I hope that we will rejoice over this, and that we will not only rejoice over God's mercy and His love, but that also when we look into difficult things like God's justice and His wrath, that we will begin to form a biblical worldview on how to handle such things and, and how to handle uh, uh, looking at God's complete character, as we see in this text, and not just parse out some of His character. So, when God displays who He is, the end goal is that we see Him for who He is and we worship Him. So, before we delve into this, I want you to see, Paul's going to say some hard things. Paul's going to get ready to say some hard things that's difficult, but I want you to keep Paul's attitude in mind. Notice what um, 
let me read some hard things and then let me tell you some things that Paul says in this in this verse. So, so let's look at starting in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, if your response to hearing that is serves them right, you are unbiblical and you are walking in heresy. Let me tell you what Paul says to this in verse nine, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying in my conscience. Testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In chapter 10, verse 1, notice what Paul says here. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. And again, in verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is being written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to God. So what Paul is saying here. As, as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit and he gives us some hard things about God's wrath and about God's justice, is Paul is clearly denoting to us that Paul is not God and there are things that God knows that Paul doesn't know and so when he thinks about God's wrath and God's justice, do you know what it motivates him to do? To go and to pray and to weep. Any attitude outside of that when we look at God's wrath and justice is unbiblical. Am I clear? <laughs> All right. Let's move into this. So, last week we talked about the attitude of the question, and this week we're going to see the response to why he does find fault in verse 19. And there are two parts to this. And the first part is that he has the authority, that's the key, Paul tells us here that he has the authority to sovereignly choose and reject. And that's what we see in verse 20 and 21. Notice, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the lump, same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another from common use? So the reason, the reason that God is not unjust and that God can still find fault is because he has the authority to do with his creation what he chooses. And there's two things that I want to point out here. There's two pieces to this, and I want us to clearly hear this. First, we have the potter, that God, the potter, is sovereign, that he is perfect, that he is all-knowing, and that he is just. In Aren't, are we not thankful that that is the potter in whose hands that we are being molded? It's not like the kid who went in and shot up the school this past week, who when we heard about this school shooting, one of the things that he said is, I shot people and spared people based upon whether or not they were nice or kind to me. Brother and sister, we do not serve a God that acts in that way. We serve a God who is perfect in all of his ways. And he is sovereign, holy, perfect, and just. 
The key is, the key is, is, is who we are as a lump. We don't very often describe ourselves as a lump, but Paul is describing us, humanity, as a lump. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was helpful to me here. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in talking about the lump, really pointed out in one of his sermons that this lump was not the original Adam. That in Adam, Adam was created, and God looks at Adam when he creates man, and what does God say? Very good. But we know Adam and Eve, the, the, Adam, the first man, he fell into sin. And therefore, what does the lump, the offspring of Adam's race, what does that lump look like? Different people, right? But the commonality we have is that we are all fallen, guilty sinners. One commentator says this, that we have all sinned and forfeited claim to mercy, our claim to mercy. He has no obligation to us. So why does he still find fault? Because we are sinners and he is holy. We've got to understand this. I think in our day and age, one of the things that we do wrongly when we come across these issues is that we stand and we try to dictate to God divine authority that He must have mercy in the way that we would want Him to have mercy. And what we should be blown away by, as I started with, we should be blown away by the fact that God in His mercy saves some. And we see this in our, in our next reason so number one the reason that God is not unjust in doing this is that God has the authority the second part of Paul's answer is he tells us um, why he does it this way and it's to display his character and let's look starting in verse 22 and verse 22 is a hard verse Uh, Paul does this sometimes in his writings Um, Let me read verse 22, and there's been some words added to try to smooth it out. But in verse 22, it says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What we have is that this is in in uh, grammatical terms. This is we expect a if then clause. If God does this, then this is the reason. And, And in this verse, we that's not completed. And but Paul sometimes does this to bring out things so that we will see things in the text. And so what we are supposed to see or to pay special attention to is notice the phrases that are here. God willing to demonstrate his wrath. And to make known his power endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Prepared for destruction. And what is going on here? I think that Paul is paralleling verse 17 of this same chapter. Where notice the notice the, the wording here. Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raise you up. Notice to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You see, when God or when Moses encountered encountered Pharaoh, 
God had every right when Moses went to Pharaoh and says, hey, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, God had every right to do what? To wipe him out. But God, God in his patience endured Pharaoh. Why? In order to make his name known. And let's look at that uh, account for a little bit. What, what do we see when we look at the, the, the play between Pharaoh and Moses? And in chapter 7 of the book of Exodus, in verse 5, uh, God tells us the Egyptians will know. I'm getting ready to do something. And the Egyptians will know that I am God. And do you remember what happens when Moses goes in? Right? Moses goes in to Pharaoh here and uh, these, these plagues. What does Pharaoh do? He tries to replicate what Moses does with his magicians and his sorcerers, right? And, and if, we, if we knew, uh, if we really got into this story, each plague represented um, a, a characteristic of one of the gods of the Egyptians. And so with each of these, God is saying to the Egyptian people, no, 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 there is one God, I am the one God, and I will make my name great. And so as these interplays are happening... One of the things that we see because God patiently endures is that we begin to see the full character of God in the plagues that are brought out on the Egyptians. And then, you remember, Pharaoh finally lets, uh, finally lets the people go and they get to the sea. And Pharaoh is pursuing them. And do you remember what the Israelites said at the sea? We trust that God is getting ready to deliver us, right? No. Do you remember what they say? They say this. This is what they utter. They utter, we would, be better, we would have been better off as slaves in Egypt. And so what happens is that in this moment, what God is saying to them is that God is saying, my people, I'm getting ready to teach you something that is very significant. And he performs this miracle where the sea parts and he brings his people to the other side to safety. And it's at this point that Pharaoh's armies chase in and God makes his power and his wrath known against the ungodly Egyptians by the sea swallowing them up. So what we see is that God's people learn things about God because he patiently endures with vessels prepared for Destruction. The key verse, the key verse here is verse 23. This is what this, this whole section culminates on. And we see this, we know this from the, the wording and the, the, the language that is used here, and starting in verse 23. And he did this. He did this. He demonstrates his wrath. He makes his power known. He endures with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He does all of this. Listen to this. So to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy. The riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy. This isn't the only place we see this sort of thing. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus, uh, these are the words of Jesus, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses here to you. 
It says, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galilean whose blood, Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Notice what Jesus says here. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or verse 4, Or do you suppose that those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Verse 5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What Jesus is doing is that Jesus is calling attention to the fact that we, as fallen humanity, think we deserve certain things, like the mercy of God, and Jesus is telling uh, the people that are sitting around here that He is teaching, hey, listen, be careful. Get the order right. You should be amazed at the mercy of God. That tower that fell... Be amazed that you weren't under that because unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's what we deserve. And so Paul, Paul in verse 23, is saying that he demonstrates his wrath. He demonstrates his power so that vessels of mercy will make will know and to make known the riches of his glory. So because of fallen humanity, God's full character is on display. Let's just think of this for a moment. Because there is fallen humanity, we see the holiness of God, that He is above us and He is beyond us and He is set apart. He is perfect. Sin can't even exist in His presence. He is so far beyond us. He is just. God doesn't tolerate sin. God hates sin. Sin is an assault on God and we see God's justice because of fallen humanity. We also see God's love that in Ephesians 2, it tells us that God loves us, not based on anything that we've done, but from his own love. We deserve wrath, but yet he made us alive. We see his mercy. We see his mercy that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in your place and my place. Oh, what mercy our father has for us, when we deserve the wrath, he puts it on his son and we see his sovereignty here as well. That sin does not rob him of his deity or his control or his sovereignty. And all this, all this is done so that his glory is manifest and so that we would know that he has done it. And so the question that I have for you this morning, believer, are you blown away by the mercy of God? Are you blown away at the mercy of God? Are you blown away that God would love a filthy, rotten sinner like me? You should be. Are you blown away by this? You see, the problem is, if we're not blown away by this, if our view of mercy is too low then the temptation is going to be that I'm going to seek glory and I'm going to make this world and this life all about me because my life is based on my achievements, my goals, my aims, and this sort of thing. And and this is the result of not being blown away at the mercy of God. 
You see, brother and sister, if we are blown away by the mercy of God, then we begin to put ourselves in the right position underneath God, blown away, thankful, and so that we begin to worship as we ought, not in word only, but with everything that we are. Think about this. The Gentile, far off, not my people, brought in, mind blown. Think about this. The Jew whose brothers and sisters are wholesale rejecting the Messiah and God has chosen them, has spared them as one of the remnant, mind blown away. Christian, we are vessels of mercy. And our purpose is to see the sovereignty of God and to worship Him. And so, when we look at verse 19, when we look at verse 19 and it says, what will you say to me then? Why does he still find fault? We see these two things. We see that God is sovereign and that man is a sinner and he is responsible for his sin. And God had mercy on some. And this is not injustice. It's not injustice. It's pure mercy. And that the ultimate purpose of God is that we worship him and that we reverence him in everything that we do so that one day there will be from every tongue, tribe, and nation a people that will worship and to glorify Him. And brothers and sisters, these doctrines have huge implications, of which I'm only going to name two, and then I'm going to end with two problems, and then figure out where we go from there. And the two huge implications, the first one is in evangelism. Two huge implications here in evangelism. One is there is no one, there is no one who is too far from God. And we know this because of the man that wrote this letter. If we would have said anybody would have been too far off from God, it would have been Paul the Apostle. And so in our evangelism, we evangelize with courage. We evangelize proclaiming the glory of God. We evangelize at risk of our own uh, safety, our own security, our own whatever else word you want to throw in there, because we know that our God is in control and He has bid us to go and that we are to go and to proclaim His gospel and that He will draw His people to Himself through His word. So the first implication is in evangelism. The, the second huge implication has to do with our joy. What I don't want to be heard saying this morning is that if you are, um, if you understand the mercy of God, that uh, you will, that there will always be a bluebird on your shoulder and you will be whistling along through the daisies, right? That's not what I'm saying. However, however, if you truly understand the depths of mercy that God has had on you, in, on your worst day, in the worst circumstances, do you have something to be joyful about? Do you have something to worship about? Does it give you a perspective on the world that changes the way that you look at your circumstance so that you can gird yourself up and to be emboldened to go throughout your day in such a way that if you only viewed this world as about you, you'd be paralyzed. 
This has huge implications. This has huge implications for those of you who, who may be in difficult relationships. Those of you who may be sick. Those of you who may be struggling with some sort of mental illness. This has huge implication. The goal is not... I'm not saying that if you are depressed and you suffer from depression, that boom, all of a sudden, if you realize God's mercy in your life, that you come out of that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, what I am saying is that in those deep, dark times, in those moments of mental illness, we can cling to the mercy of God, that He has had mercy on me, a sinner, and that He has a plan for my life. And that gives us the motivation to get up and put one foot in front of the other. Huge implications here. So, to end, um, to end, there's, there's two things that I think, two questions that come out of this that, um, uh, that, that need to be addressed and uh, they won't be done today in the four minutes that is remaining. Um, but, but one is this. And I think this may be the most important one. Um, and so, uh, so I'm still going over in my mind what we're going to do next week. Um, but the one question is this. How does, verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, how does that square with 1 Peter 3, 9, which says that he does not will or he does not desire that any should perish. So when Gary gets back from Honduras, no. We may do that next week. I'm just chomping at the bit to, to explain how that works out. The other question that this leaves us with, so, so, so we, I think in going through Romans 9, we need a sermon on 1 Peter 3, 9. I also think in going through Romans chapter 9, we need a sermon. You've heard me say this on John chapter 3. John chapter 3 of uh, God so loved the world that whoever the elect are, that's not what it says, is it? No, I changed the words. We don't change those words. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so we need sermons on these two things. And so I think we will do that. This is a surprise to Gary, so we have to talk about this a little bit. Um, so, uh, so that we will look at this over the next two weeks. But I, I just want to end there to let you know that these questions don't escape my mind. You know, one of the things you can do in preaching is uh, leave off those questions, and then you don't have to address it. But you're left wondering. You know, those of you who love God's Word and reads God's Word are saying, well, oh, wh- wait a minute, Lewis, how does Romans 9 fit with 1 Peter? And... Ezekiel, maybe? There's a passage in Ezekiel. There's a God. Uh, I don't know that. Ben, Ezekiel, maybe. <laughs> Where God says, I don't desire that any should perish. This isn't a new thing that Peter brings out. So how do we square that off with this? And so I want you to know that there are questions that are going to be answered. So here's what I want to leave you with. Here's what I want to leave you with. Christian, be encouraged. Christian, gaze God wants you to look into the face of His mercy and realize how blessed you are that the God of the universe loves you. Do we look around and see God's wrath being displayed and God's wrath being 
uh, held off in the world? We absolutely do. What is our response? I hope that you remember what our response is, is that we should weep and that we should go. It's what we're commanded to do. And we should be praying. And so I want to leave you with that this morning. And I want to pray for us as we end our sermon that God will take his word and strengthen our hearts and strengthen our resolve so that we can glorify him more freely by reflecting, by seeing and taking in and then reflecting, giving him glory and giving him praise by us taking the position that we're supposed to take and being thankful that the God of the universe loves us. Let's pray. God, we are amazed and we are blown away at your mercy. Your word says that your mercies are new every morning. God, I pray that we are a people at Signal Mountain Bible Church that show the world your glory because we're so blown away by the mercy that you've had upon us that you would dare to call us son or daughter. Lord, I think most of us, if not all of us in this room, are Gentiles. And we should just be in awe with our mouths hanging open that your gospel was opened up to us and that we heard it and that we received it. We should just be blown away by that. God, we are thankful. And God, I pray that we through Scripture would understand that those who've been shown mercy, that it's never the intention for those to whom you show mercy to bottle that up. But God, we're to do two things with it. One is that we are to worship and praise you and thank you for that. And the other thing that we're supposed to do is be a conduit of your mercy and your grace. So that maybe even through us, maybe even through us, that you would use us as an instrument of mercy to draw people who are perishing and bring them to salvation. God, I pray that you would do that. God, give us boldness. God, we love you. And it's only through your son, Jesus, that we stand in your mercy. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.